Welcome to First Turn, where we play board games for the first time and discuss our immediate reactions. It's like book club, but for board games. My name is BP. And I'm Kiwi. And today we are actually going to be telling our experience at a new conference called Circle DC, a conference on history, education, and play. It was the first annual conference. Hopefully annual. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, which means we were in the room where it happened. Indeed. The weirdest room I've ever played board games in. It was a very interesting room. It was at the Naval Lodge. Number four. Number, the fourth Naval Lodge. Uh, Naval Lodge number four is how I saw it listed. Okay. All the pictures and stuff hmm. in the building. Basically, it was a... a Masonic. Ma- a, yeah, Mason's Lodge that was over 100 years old, I think, based on the, the buildings and pictures and stuff I saw. Yeah. So, but like the inside of the room had all kinds of like the Masonic symbols and like tons of Egyptian stuff. There was a... Uh, the boobs. A, well, there were, yeah, the disembodied boobs, which I looked up online and like, that's a question that everybody has. What are the disembodied mm-hmm. boobs? I couldn't find a good reason for it. Uh, but the, the, the coffin. Oh, great. Next, yeah. next to the weird uh, water fountain that might have been a water fountain or might not have been a water fountain. Who knows? Uh, so that was interesting. And the yeah. giant, giant throne. Yeah, it was interesting. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, what what's this conference on history, education, and play? How would you have described kind of the the premise for the conference in general, Kiwi? Uh, I think it was, there's a lot of designers locally here to D.C., so just bringing together those designers with folks that enjoy playing those types of games. So a lot of historical-based or war games was kind of the theme uh, to it. Uh, they had some mini tournaments that fed into a larger tournament for votes for women. Uh, but then there were a lot of folks kind of uh, playtesting games. So uh, we played a lot of interesting games and I walked around and saw some interesting games. There were some uh, more mainstream, I don't know about mainstream, but like some published uh, hobby war games um, or board games. So like Twilight Struggle was there, which I think is like in the top 10 on Board Game Geek. Um Along with Star Wars Rebellion, which I think is also in the top 10 on Board Game Geek. Uh, so there were a lot of uh, big games. Uh, and then some designers that well known within the hobby war gaming or hobby board gaming community, but also some well known designers if you're more deeper into the war gaming community. Indeed. And so you may all be wondering to yourself, well, BP, you are not into wargaming very much. We've listened to this podcast. We know these things. So why did you decide to go to this conference? This is a good question. Except all I have to say is, is if you are a fan of the show, you do know that Fort Circle Games uh, has also quickly become one of our f- favorite publishers. Um in that we've played two games published by them, both of which um, are stellar. So, yep. And we're very interested in some of the games that they have planned coming up. So, and we all know that I'm interested in education and history. So, it was a win win. Um, there were a lot of events to go to, and unfortunately, um, could not attend all of them. 
Um, so we'll just highlight maybe some of uh, the ones we did attend. How does that sound? Okay. What was your uh, kind of top one? Saturday was our biggest gaming day. Yeah. So we kind of missed, it was a three-day conference and we missed most of Friday, unfortunately. Yeah. But I was traveling and you took a tour of the Pentagon, which was part of Circle DC. Because mm-hmm. uh, being a war game, historical-based con- convention conference in Washington, DC, you're going to get a lot of folks within the government. I know I talked to somebody who worked for the State Department, mm-hmm. uh, a couple for the Center for, uh, I think, Center for Naval Analysis, CNA, mm-hmm. uh, were there. Um, so you get you get those types of folks. So are those the professional war gamers? People were talking about being there. Yeah, and I think I, professional is like a weird term. So like people have talked about, you know, is war gaming a professional pursuit? Or is it because like most people who do wargaming as a job, their job description usually isn't professional wargamer. Mm. It's something else. And they just happen to do wargaming as like part of that. Uh, so there has been talks and like blog, blog posts and stuff about how do you professionalize something like wargaming in order to, you know, have jobs like junior wargamer, senior wargamer, something you might find in like a you know, STEM style job where you right. you know, like positions like helper, senior analysts, you know, things like that. So, uh, but you would definitely need some sort of like certification process and or like a formal education route, which there are starting to be more like game focused uh, education, but a lot of those tend to lean more towards video games uh, and they'll have like side electives as board games uh so i know some of the folks that are there they do stuff with uh georgetown mm-hmm. uh, and theirs is more of a side type thing to people doing like political science and those types of uh majors at georgetown so saturday was our big day uh what was one of your uh things you were most looking forward to that we got to uh, I was just, I don't know if I was necessarily looking forward to anything in particular, just getting a chance to play some games that, you know, we tend not to play a lot of like historical based games that are more true to the history. I think the games that we have played that have had a historical stance sometimes don't necessarily have that kind of, um, you know, deep historicalness. Um, and I think the games that we played, I think they were good. I don't know if they were for me. Right. To be fair, Kiwi was not signed. I was, I signed up for the conference first. In fact, I had like badge number, like 30 something. I was uh, one of the the very first to sign up for the conference. But um, so to be fair, Kiwi did not, all the games we played were my choice. Um, So I was just... Merely seeing, like, if there was something maybe that uh, we didn't play that you would have been interested in playing. Uh, yeah, there were definitely things that I would have been more interested in playing. Um, uh, somebody was doing a teach and play of Combat Commander, which I do like Combat Commander. Eric and I played that previously. I liked it more than Eric did. 
Um, there are also some, uh, I would have liked to have done the Twilight Struggle one because I've mm -hmm. always been interested in playing that one. Um, they were doing a play test for a game called Night Witches. Yeah. I think it's the... I wanted that one too. Bomber Squadron uh, about the uh, Soviet women pilots who did mm -hmm. uh, night bombing you know, at, at World War II. And then uh, I think those were kind of the big ones that I would have liked to have been able to do. Yeah. The Night Witches uh, was a small... Uh, number of people who could sign up for each learn and play yeah because it was only two people it was a, it's a two-player game yeah and it was it was done out like every every single day it yeah. was maxed out and then um it was like an interesting bag draw type of mechanic with a push your luck aspect mm -hmm. to it too because uh, i stood and watched a little bit of it so it was definitely uh would have been interesting and i'm yeah. looking forward to seeing that one as it goes forward uh, and then the Twilight Struggle, I think the learn and play was for Red Sea, but I think there were also some uh, play testing going on for some more versions that may be coming. So we'll just leave it at that yeah. for now. I will say that the most interesting thing we did on Saturday was the eyeball to eyeball and missile crisis. I was going to come up with that. Um, Eyeball to Eyeball Cuban Missile Crisis was a RPG, um, and I want to say it's being developed, um, uh, I think, partway with the center at uh, Michigan. Yes, I think it's Central Michigan. Central Michigan. Yeah, cent or, yeah it's either Central Michigan or Michigan State mm -hmm. that they were kind of, it's a, not a side project, but they're kind of producers of it while somebody else develops it yeah uh but it was a web-based rpg so we were set obviously it was about the cuban missile crisis we were all set at different tables so that we had washington dc as a table cuba as a table and moscow as a table and you couldn't talk between the three tables uh they had it web-based so that you were assigned a character uh, so like I was the general in charge of the Soviet military mm -hmm. um, and I had certain people that I could talk to. So the website only let me talk to those certain people. And then if Washington wanted to have a line to Moscow, they had the U.S. ambassador to Russia, which was, which was me. Yep. And then, you know, Moscow also had the Russian ambassador to the United States and they were able to talk to the table for the U.S., um, so it was definitely an, a very interesting way to go about it um, and super interesting. And, you know, it would take a little bit of programming, but you could probably put in a lot of different uh, events mm -hmm. that you could role play in, in that kind of way. And I thought um, for a, like, a classroom, it would be super uh, easy to, yeah. uh, to introduce and... Like I was, I was a mole. I had access to like the CIA because in real life there was a Russian uh, operator. The CIA had a person on the inside who was providing information about like the talks and stuff. And so my character was kind of merged with that character. And so I had direct access to the CIA director. So he and I were chatting in this application. And then uh, the person playing Robert F. Kennedy had access to like the Russian, you know, minister, state minister or something like that. Uh, and so they were talking. So we had like two different moles 
And then the guy playing Khrushchev, his sheet was just like, hey, uh, if you don't like do well, they're going to overthrow you. <laughs> People are going to conspire against you. And so like, he saw me like typing furiously away, like messaging. And I tried to play it off as like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking to our general on the ground in Cuba. Um, yeah. So, so you lied. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's how was I going to get away with? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, no, it was really great. It also came with primary source material. So as an historian, that was also really great. Um, and uh, the GM could also, so the game spanned three years and, um, right? Oh, no, it was just... Uh, just the, the weeks for... Sorry, I had missile crisis. I'm, I'm conflating it with another game that I played later on that I'll get to, but... Uh, Depending on, you know, how people communicated and kind of the events and news releases, because there was also, I think, some media intermediaries mm -hmm. who were supposed to be a part of it as well. But um, the GM could have all of these different events uh, kind of basically loaded and ready to go, depending on kind of what decisions ended up happening. Um we left at a freeze, I think. Yeah. So tensions really high, but no nuclear explosion yet. Yeah, nothing like that. And then it's a semi-rigid system, so the like the DM was able or the GM was able to. Uh, so like we had discussed because like the the person playing Fidel got very aggressive and started like surrounding Guantanamo Bay and mm -hmm. starting to have protests and threatening the United States. And, you know, we as Russia were like, hey, the only person who gets to declare war with Russian forces is Russia. We're not doing this. So, like, we told all our people to, like, pull back, like, only fire in self-defense, like, do not engage the Americans. Uh, but then we started messaging Raul Castro saying, like, Hey, you need to either calm your brother down or maybe you will have a better time as the second president of, <laughs> of Cuba. And so the D, the GM actually, because we asked him, uh, hey, can we depose Fidel? Mm -hmm. And his answer was like, so he, he'd run it a lot. And this is the first time someone had actually asked him, can we remove Fidel from power? Uh, mm -hmm. And so he had actually ginned up like a whole like a bunch of wickets that if we said go and started using the you know the forty two thousand mm -hmm. heavy air quotes advisors uh that russia had in cuba at the time we would be able to basically uh stage a, a coup essentially in mm -hmm. cuba and put raul in power and so he had had to come up with a bunch of things in order to do that and we just ran out of time before we decided to actually no. Go with that strategy. Go with that strategy. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So it was a, a lot of fun. Um, the time flew by for that one. We were only allotted two hours, and um, yeah, that was really great fun. Definitely a probably the top for the weekend. I would say. Um, we, we played some other interesting ones that day that are, I think, still in development. Yep. One learning about kind of wage working and yeah. uh, literally called work worker placement. placement. Uh -huh. uh, it was pretty interesting. Uh, there were, of course, some worker placement mechanics in it. 
Uh, and then one on the Cross Bronx Expressway. And basically on the Bronx, we played a scenario for the 1970s, although apparently it uh, covers about six, six different decades. Yeah. So the game is set so that if you play the entire campaign, you basically play from, I think you said from 1990 to back to, is it, yeah, to so 2000. To 2000. And it's supposed to be about the, the migration of folks around um, New York City, specifically the Bronx, um, based on like different things that happened during those different decades um, with like uh, expressways going in and basically, because what was the, the one district went from like 180,000 people at the beginning of that decade, the beginning in mm -hmm. 1970, and by 1980 was down to like 40 or 50,000 people. Yeah. So like a drop in two, two thirds. Yeah. All because an expressway went in and they basically pile drived right through a whole bunch of neighborhoods. And so it's essentially cooperative, mm -hmm. but semi-cooperative. So there's the, the private sector, the public sector, mm -hmm. and the community. And so they each have different capabilities of doing things and they have different goals for what they're trying to do for victory points. But everybody loses if you fill up the prison full of, of people. So you don't, you want to help in, in that regard, but then you're also trying to win by like meeting your objectives. Mm -hmm. So we, we lost, we put, a lot of people got put in prison. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people got put in prison. Yeah. Well, because me and my uh, teammate, I think kind of turned code at the end and just decided to screw everybody. Yeah. It was kind of the idea of if, if I can't win, nobody wins. Right. Uh, idea. So it was interesting. I think as a cooperative, it, the teach was hard. Mm -hmm. I, my, myself and my partner, we didn't really understand what was going on. Uh, I had a hard time hearing just because it was louder in the room. It was very loud in the room. Um, but then I didn't really understand like why we were doing things. The whole time we played, it felt like a competitive game not a cooperative game and then by the end of it when we lost it was like oh yeah we should, probably should have been working more together mm -hmm. and it's like i don't know how i feel necessarily about semi-cooperative game i know i do not like hidden trader games it's, it's just yeah hidden trader there's there's a lot of discussion actually out on the web about semi-cooperative apparently no yeah i just like we're either working together or we're not working together the semi-cooperative thing, I think, is very hard to pull off because you get the same thing of, um, if I can't win, nobody wins. Mm -hmm. Which, in, you know, within a mentality like that, it's, okay, you might as well just be playing a competitive game. Right. So, uh, I'm, I, I'm still on the fence on semi-cooperative. Okay. I bet I could go back and look and see, like, which semi-cooperative games I like. I know if it has a hidden, hidden trader mechanic, I am not going to like it. Mm -hmm. uh, if it has a hidden trader mechanic where there may or may not be a hidden trader, I hate it even more. <laughs> Do not like that. Like, I need to know that there is a hidden trader somewhere right. so I can try and figure it out. And then not like it at the end. Yeah, There, there wasn't one. We just kind of ended up playing that way. Yeah. Only because, two, I was also very distracted because I was having fangirl moment. And got to meet Elizabeth Hargrave. Sure. 
<laughs> yes, who was also there. Who was also there. Just play testing just stuff. Play testing okay. stuff, having fun. I think she was just there on Saturday. Yeah. 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 Um, was that? Uh, no, we had one more that day, didn't we? Uh, see, we did worker placement and then we rolled into... Uh, oh, we did the... Eye to eye. Um, tyranny of blood. Oh, yeah. Tyranny of blood. You can talk about that one. Okay. Um, well, we, we had our lunch break where, of course, I planned the food as we always do. It was no Indianapolis uh, where we had really, I mean, D.C. has great food options, but we were on a tight schedule. So um, Tyranny of Blood was our post-lunch. Uh, it's India's caste system under British colonialism, 1750 to 1947. Um, it's an Prototype, asymmetric, um, what's a CDG model? Uh, Card-driven game. Okay, yeah. Uh, basically on India's caste system and right uh, inequality in the caste system. And also talking about kind of the play that both the, we did the company era. So when it was the East India Company's monopoly over being able to set up trade networks within the Indian subcontinent and uh, looking at how that affected the social structures in religious, military, economic and labor domains. So it was um, I was very interested in this. I'm sure it was not something you would have many people would have probably normally gravitated to, except that um the topic itself greatly interests me in really uncovering more about uh, Indian history in general uh, for me is something interesting. And I think it did that albeit in a complex manner. It was uh, overwhelming just looking at the board at first and figuring out all that was going in. Once we got through some some turns, it became clearer but it definitely seemed a very complex game on the surface yeah and i think because like the cards weren't really cards they were just printed out slips of paper that represented the cards i think you know in further development they could have put little blurbs uh on the cards like yeah. that historical piece we got that historical piece because the designer was there and he was able to talk through like oh you're playing this card well historically this is why that this card does that thing and this is why you know, that was there. Um, plays over four turns, essentially. Each one of those turns covers about 50 years. Um, and I think you could have fast-forwarded because, like, I... My faction uh, was, like, the warrior cast, um, and I was trying to cause the rebellion, essentially, that would have shifted us from going from the company era to the British Raj era. Um, and I think... Because I was able to do that on that first turn. We only played one turn of this game, and it took two hours between the turn and the teach. Mm -hmm. So it's a very long game. Um, and I think I, most of what I got out of it was listening to the designer talk about, you know, why a car did a specific thing and why that was there. Uh, that was most interesting to me. I think the game would be longer than I would want to play. There's information for it available on Board Game Geek. Um, again, I think I uh, it it did win as an Award first place winner. Um, so uh, it is definitely something that's interesting and 
uh, available to read more on. Like I said, I thought the topic was pretty interesting, um, which is why I had signed up for it. Uh, there were so many, so many games on Saturday. It was really hard to decide. Uh, and talking to other people at the conference, um, I really often wished I could have been in a couple of different places at once. Sunday seemed, uh, as with most kind of conferences and conventions, a lot more laid back. Um, I uh, played a game, Land and Freedom, the Spanish Revolution and Civil War, which was uh, the other semi-cooperative that I had been thinking about where you um, were battling fascists in the Spanish Civil War. So you were the three factions, the anarchists, the... Uh, communists and then the moderates um, and you basically had to hold off the fascists for three years until 1939 when um, basically England and France decided that they could no longer let uh, Hitler do what he wanted. Um, finally. Finally. Um, it was uh, really interesting Um I played the anarchists uh, and the history and research done with it. I was speaking to the developer uh, was really well done. Um, there's a reading list included in the um, board game as well. Um, and uh, it had two different kind of sides to it, kind of the military side and then kind of the political tract side. So it was semi-cooperative in that all three um, would be trying to, during the battle phase, make sure that the um, there were multi-purpose cards, basically making sure that uh, those cards were not, that the fascists were playing would not result in a win or a victory and therefore write the defeat of the kind of populist front that was developed during the war. Uh, and then, of course, the political tract was much more where the competitive side came from. And both really seemed to mimic uh, the actual kind of conflicts within that war structure itself that had taken place um, over the short period of time uh, that was uh, during the Spanish Civil War. So. Uh, the populist front, which included the National Republican Party that had been dem uh, democratically elected, um, they did not form a very good coalition throughout this period and had troubles, right, fighting uh, the fascists and therefore lost in reality. Um, I only played around, so uh, I only played a year of the three years because uh, we were then playing in a tournament. Um, but uh, it did seem really interesting and I'd be uh, interested in trying it again, it, though it's got that semi-cooperative mechanic that you're on the fence for. Um, and that's apparently what ended up happening with the game after I left is that... They were cooperative for a little for most of the game, and then towards the end, we're like, "Ugh, we can't have this one faction winning." So not cooperative at all. Yeah, right back to our earlier conversation. Right back to our earlier conversation. 
Um, but uh, the designer also did one that was being uh, taught there and played on Harper's Ferry, so on John Brown's um, Rebellion. The anti-slavery one. Yep. Yep. And um, one that was not there, but uh, I think is also uh, out and published by a small publisher. I forget what they're called. Something Panther. Um, on the Russian Civil War. So uh, kind of a theme going there. And then the tournament you mentioned, we'll use the word tournament loosely. Right. Uh, there were several tournaments. uh Air quotes uh, throughout Friday and Saturday, uh, and then this one was uh, Sunday morning. It was mostly just folks, uh, you know, playing games. The Shores of Tripoli, uh, yeah. So they did the Shores of Tripoli, Twilight Struggle, Red Sea, Watergate, Red Flag over Paris, and then uh, the winners for each of those all fed into uh, the votes for women. So uh, we played in the Red Flag over Paris. Uh, apparently, the designer was supposed to attend and help uh, teach it and then play it. Uh, but they got sick or something and weren't able to come. So there was one other individual who had played it a single time. He actually owned it. Um, and then I just read the rules and watched a bunch of videos and I helped teach the person that I played. Um, so essentially it was 1870s. Um, one person plays Versailles. The other person plays the Commune. Uh, and it was just after the Prussia, one of the wars with Prussia, um, this game is actually published. Sorry, we should have said that. Uh, GMT Games. The designer is Fred Serval, uh, published by GMT Games, and they're actually doing their uh, pre-orders for the second edition now. So it's published in 2021. So if you remember, we talked about GMT does these P500 series where they will do pre-orders until they hit 500 copies, and then they will start the process of actually uh, yeah, yeah, actually printing them. And then you can continue to pre-order up until they say like, okay, now we're shipping it. And then they cut off pre-orders. They will make more than just what's pre-ordered, but they'll cut off pre-orders at a certain point. Um, so anyway, so yeah, it's a red flag over Paris. Um, it was interesting. Uh -huh. um, I think there was some, so it's a card-driven game where uh, you get a series of cards and those cards can either be played by, and it's the same deck, uh, that both players uh, draw from. So the cards will either be uh, commune cards, uh, Versailles cards, or neutral cards. And so if it's a neutral card or matches your faction, you can play it for the event. If it's not, you can play, or any of the cards, you can play for a value that's in the kind of the top left, and you could do different things by adding uh, your faction to places or taking away the other faction from places. Um, I thought... Like, it had some interesting things that you could do. Mm -hmm. um, I think the problem was is that it was luck dependent on what cards you got, and there wasn't really a way to mitigate that. So, like, my opponent got th all four of his cards. So you get four cards each round. You play three of them, and you keep one for a very final round. Um, you play three rounds of that, and then the cards that you kept, you then play the mounds for events in the last uh, turn. But my opponent on the very first round drew all four cards for my faction. Mm -hmm. He had nothing for his faction. So he wasn't able to really do anything on that turn and it really set him behind. Mm -hmm. Now, it did come back to uh, a tiebreaker because we both maxed out our 
the victory points that we needed. Um, so it did come down to a tiebreaker and it went down to like, I had more tiebreakers than he did. And so that's how I won. And so it just seemed kind of like, eh. And then you won your game. Yeah, I also won a tiebreaker. But I feel like uh, some of the rules were um, not interpreted the same way as you had interpreted them. So I, I, I'll give my win an asterisk there. But so then we played together. Yep. And you beat me. Yep. Only by one point, though. So the commune, they just wanted to have more political points than the Versailles had military points. Mm -hmm. I think it ended up being like three to two or something like that. So it was pretty close. Um, Yeah, like I said, it it was interesting. I'm glad that I played it once. I don't think I need to play it again. You actually played it twice. I actually played it twice, you're right. And I didn't mind playing it twice. Yeah. Um, Like, it's not a bad game. I just, there wasn't really any way to mitigate a bad hand of cards. Yeah. Which I think is a shame. The the cards that were really cool from a historical perspective in that they were normally figures uh, that were had been involved in the Paris Commune in the, I think, uh, 1871 was the year. Yep. Um, and uh, some of the flavor text on those were direct quotes from people either from the person themselves or about that person. Yep. So some of them were kind of interesting yep. in that aspect. And then the tournament finale, kind of the last one, I did not get to play in Votes for Women, but I did get my fangirl moment and got uh, Tori Brown to to sign our copy of the game yeah. and uh, some plans, hopefully, for some collaboration in promoting her game in the future. Uh, it is definitely one I'll play again and again. I was hoping to get it into the tournament so I could play it and maybe finally win. Uh, but you didn't even win. Nope. I, I didn't even do very well. In fact, uh, the, the Kevin from Ford Circle Games like looked at my board and was like, oh, that was actually a, a very bad loss. <laughs> uh, so I played the suffragists for the first time because usually I or the, all of our other games, I've been the opposition. And just playing the game, like I think. Um, I think the suffragists definitely have. To win as a suffragist, I think, is harder than it is to win as the opposition. Um, although I looked at the board they because they took a picture of the board. and The, the winning board? Uh, and she only won, like, I think the suffragists only needed, like, two more check marks and they would have won. Mm-hmm. So, And then she won as the suffragist during the first round, uh, but on the very last roll, mm-hmm. on the very last state, uh, for the having to go into that roll off mechanic at the end. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the things like I think Red Flag over Paris might have been better had it been there been a Versailles deck and a mm-hmm. just get rid of the neutral cards. You don't really need them. Uh, and you could have just done them as Versailles and um and you could have just like toned down some of the cards a little bit uh to make them slightly less powerful. And I feel like that would mitigate some of the luck. I mean it's still based on what you get, but Votes for women's the same way, right? It, you could get very lucky and get cards. I mean, I, am I the game that I won? Like, I pulled out the 15th Amendment. Like, mm-hmm. on the very first time, I was able to play that, and that was, like, a great benefit to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and if that comes out later in the early part of the game, it's not as beneficial as, you know, having it come out that early for me as it did. 
So I, I think that's one way to mitigate the luck in a game like Red Flag over Paris is having faction-specific Right. Yeah. Be interesting. Um, yeah, so, and that was basically our experience then at uh, the... Circle DC, um, first annual conference. Um, I think one of my big kind of takeaways is, I mean, that uh, I would take away from this in general is that uh, war games aren't necessarily just about war, although I say that and I feel like many of the ones we did were, but not necessarily. Um, it just has to do with some of the more mechanic styles. Um, so would you go again? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I've always wanted to go to like a smaller convention that seemed more, I don't want to say intimate, but like a lot more chill, not as crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, although it was still, it was still in a single room. So it was pretty loud, which for me personally is not great for me. Um, I struggle sometimes with large crowds and the noise and stuff. So, but it was Super easy to just kind of step outside of the room and it got quiet very fast. Um, so that was good for me. But, um, you know, a direct contrast to Gen Con, which we've been to, or Comic Con, or mm -hmm. Phoenix Fan Fusion, <laughs> any of those where there's lots and lots and lots of people. Yeah. Um, and I think. The folks who hosted it learned, you know, some lessons for next year to try and make it a little bit more smooth line. Like they had tables designated for games, but then they didn't designate which number for the tables. So I think they wanted to do that next year so that people could be like, oh, I'm on table seven. They just mm -hmm. go to table seven. So uh, that would definitely make uh, next year e easier. Um, yeah, so I would definitely go again. I, I enjoyed it. I, I'm sold too. And uh ready to get involved a little bit more. I had a great time also networking as I'm a big people person. So getting to talk to other historians who also try to integrate uh, integrate gaming into their education. And um, some there were lots and lots of uh, game developers there. And so it was funny talking to some of the other historians because we kept getting asked which which was our game. And <laughs> we didn't have a game. We were there just to play games. So it was a nice mixture of all, even just some, some hobbyists who just showed up just for fun as well. Yeah. There you go. Uh, so that was our recap, I guess, on a conference on gaming. So if you have any recommendations of games you'd like to hear our impressions on, or maybe conferences that we could go to that are smaller, uh, please send them our way. You can do so via email at firstturntabletop at gmail.com, or hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at the First Turn Cast. And the podcasting camel says, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcatchers. We look forward to hearing from you. Play more games.